Good morning, Richard. <laughs> Missed you. Missed a lot of you. Hey, before we jump in the message, I have some, a couple serious things I want us just to pause to pray over this morning. Uh, number one is we have a missionary that serves in Azerbaijan, and we received an email from him this morning saying there has been a civil war that has broken out between the border of Azerbaijan and Armenia, between the two nations, and Turkey, Iran, and Russia have all started to engage in it as well. It's, it could be a very um, huge thing in that region with a lot of casualties and so he's very concerned about his country and the work they're doing there. His name is Rahim, and he's one of our missionaries that's on the board out there. We want to pray for him. Also, I want to encourage you, as you know, we're in a very tense political season. And I've seen people post, and I've had people that are friends of mine from high school post, and, and they'll post saying, you know, if you're a real Christian, you can't vote for um, this party because they support abortion. If you're a real Christian, you can't support, vote for this man because he doesn't, doesn't practice this Christian faith and he's very vulgar and that kind of stuff. And people are going to tell you who you can and can't vote for. And I just want to tell you, you are free to vote according to your conscience as the Holy Spirit guides you. And to be honest, God doesn't guide us all as believers to vote the same. However, I would say what God is concerned with, I believe, more than who wins an election at every level is... Where has, his, where has his church been in the midst of this? Because we're told in Scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 2 to pray for kings and those in authority so that we may live peaceful lives and that all people may come to know that there is one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus, and find salvation in him. We need um, men and women in leadership roles who God can use to, further, to allow the church to do the work the church was called to do to allow us the freedom so we can do the ministry. Let government do what government can do. Let us do what we can do. And so we want to pray for that. Now, there are some issues that will be on the ballot, too, that, that I think do. The Bible does speak directly to, um, and, and we'll talk more about that in weeks to come. But the fact is um, we need to be people of prayer, and uh, I believe whoever wins at every level, whoever becomes the next president, um, we want to make sure that God uses that person to further his work. And so uh, let's pray for those things this morning. Father, we just thank you for the privilege of prayer and that you call us to shape world events through prayer. And Lord, help us not to be um, deficient in our prayers because this is a critical time and there are big issues. And Lord, we do pray that you would raise up men and women who want to serve you. And Lord, they're imperfect and we know that, that no politician is perfect, no pastor is perfect, no Christian is perfect, but we pray that um, they would be instruments in your hands that you would use them for your good, Father, so that people truly could come to know Jesus and the salvation he offers. And Lord, our hearts go especially to Rahim and the people in, um, in that area of the world right now where there's um, escalating conflict. Would you uh, bring peace quickly, Father? Would you help those that are leaders um, put their heads together and come to resolutions so bloodshed doesn't occur and lives lost. And I pray for Rahim that you help him and his family know how to minister amidst this time of fear in their nation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, if you're new with us, we just started a series last week, and welcome again to those that are online as well. You can follow along with us. But we started this new series on 1 Peter, because Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, wrote a couple letters in the New Testament. And this first letter is written to a group of um, believers, churches that, that exist up in Asia Minor, which is now northern Turkey, and uh, they were living in Roman colonies. And in these Roman colonies, there's, um, there was a lot of persecution going on. Things were becoming uncomfortable for the Christians. In fact, they were actually going to get more uncomfortable in the years ahead. But um, he, he reminds those believers that they are, they are exiles in this earth, which means you don't 
You don't belong here eternally. You're just passing through. You're sojourners. You're on a mission. So you're going to be here for a while, but you're going to someplace else, which has been the ancient um, view of faith. Abraham looked for a city beyond the earthly city he was moving to, and we do too. So, so don't get too locked into earth. He's telling the people you're going to another place. And while you're here, just remember who you are, that you are chosen by God and that you've been distinguished by the Holy Spirit to be different from the culture. You're to be holy and live lives that are distinct as followers of Jesus. You've been redeemed by the blood of Christ that has been sprinkled on you. And so that's who you are. And today we shift in that story as Peter now tells them, because of who you are, here's what you should do. And so we're going to go into this next chunk of Scripture in, in um, Peter's first letter because I think the things that we're going to talk about today are not only relevant to the, the listeners way back then, but really practical to us. And you'll find out as we read that we're going through times in our lives that sometimes can seem hopeless, can seem very difficult, and yet there's in the midst of all that, God is at work. And so open your Bibles, if you have one, to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to read chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Uh, he says it here to embrace the living hope. Embrace a living hope. Hope is so powerful. It's one of the three greatest things, faith, hope, and love. And we emphasize love a lot. We emphasize faith a lot. But hope, hope should not be undersold. We need hope. It causes us to, to wake up in the morning and, and be optimistic about what's to come. And it, it allows us to live life with a bounce in our step knowing, that, hey, we're going to get through this because better things are coming. We have to have hope in order to, to live. Hope is that kind of light at the end of the dark tunnel. Now, you guys know Bear Grylls. Bear Grylls is an outdoorsman, has a show. I think it's Running, with, running, with, uh, running Wild with Bear Grylls, and he brings celebrities out into the wild, and they do crazy things. They, they do daring things that um, confront their fears. They eat things that we would never eat. Um, he just shows them how to survive in the outdoors. Well, uh, he has an interesting history, and he's a believer. And at a conference, he shared some of his own journeys through life, and one of them was when he, um, he tried out for the elite forces within the United Kingdom's military, the uh, Special Air Service, and he failed the first time he went through the training. Very grueling training. Only elite survived this. It tests your physical skills, your mental abilities, and your emotional fortitude, and he, he didn't make it, but he was determined he still wanted to do it, so he came back a second time and went through all those grueling things, uh, you know, for a couple weeks, just grueling, grueling. And toward the end of this test, they, they, they went over a high mountain, and they started scaling down the other side of this mountain early in the morning, and they saw trucks waiting at the base of the mountain. They knew that this journey was coming to an end finally. And so that gave them that hope, like, let's just finish strong, this is done with. And right when they neared the base of that mountain, the trucks drove away. And their, and their leader says, guys... The trucks are going to meet you on the other side of that mountain. Go back. You imagine how discouraged they were. A lot of those guys just broke down. It was all they could take. They, just, they, were, they were a mess. And they said, we're done. We're tapped out. And they quit. Four guys determined they were going to go back up that mountain. And they walked about 200 yards when they were told, stop. Trucks are coming back. We're taking you home. They were just testing what would happen when you lost hope. See, when you, when, you, when you 
pull the rug out from somebody and remove their hope, um, all of a sudden, even taking your own life seems desirable. Like, why live? Why go on? I've lost hope. I don't have any reason. Edmund Clowney, a a Bible scholar, says, hell begins where hope ends. I think there's a truth in that. Hell begins where hope ends. Yesterday, I was reading a a blog post by an internet site called Medscape, and they did a survey of 1,000 high school and college students, and they came out with this article on suicide, depression, and anxiety, COVID's heavy toll on youth. It said that one-fourth of these that were surveyed knew students who had expressed suicidal thoughts since the start of the pandemic, and one out of 20 that had been surveyed actually attempted suicide. And you know as well as I know, from young people to older people, there had been a, a rash of suicides in the midst of this pandemic. Why? Loss of hope. Is this ever going to end? Where's the light at the end of the tunnel? In fact, when this all started back in March, I really thought, you know, we're going to spike, it's going to come down. By end of April, we're going to get back to normal. Didn't happen. Didn't happen in May either. June, things started to ease up, and then, and then they started to close again. Then July came. Surely by the fall, kids will be ready to go back to school as normal. Nope, it's not. Can you tell me when this is going to end? It's a month, two months, three months, six months, next summer. When is it? it? People are saying, I don't have any hope that our government can fix this. I don't have any hope that science is going to come up with a, with a vaccine anytime soon. I don't have confidence. I've, I'm losing hope. And so people are like bailing out because they just don't see it. And so we can't put our hope in science, in government, education, even in ourselves. Peter says where to put hope. We have hope, a living hope, because of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. That is a living hope. That becomes what Hebrews calls the anchor for the soul. When storms come and they, and they, they move you around, you say, I'm not moving because I'm anchored into something solid. You're not just wishfully thinking, like, oh, things will get better, click my heels, you know, count to 10, have positive thoughts. That's not, that's not hope. Hope has to be grounded in reality. And the reality is this. In the darkest moment of history, when, 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 what some thought the Messiah was going to break forth and bring a kingdom to this earth, he was nailed to a cross. And they thought, oh my goodness, there, there goes our hope. And so they scattered and they went back to their old jobs. Peter's out on a boat fishing with his buddies. It's done. And God says, uh-uh-uh. He raises Jesus from the dead. And Jesus is alive. And so if in the most dark moment of history, God says there was hope in the cracked Uh, opening of a stone rolling away from a tomb, what is it in your life that's so dark that you can't find hope in it? If there's hope in the midst of death, then everything else that we face that's less than death ought ought to cause us to grab onto that same hope so that we can get through this very difficult time. And so we have hope that anchors to the past, and then he says, but you have an inheritance in the future. That gets you motivated. God has something for you that's coming when you leave this earth. This earth's going to fade away. Everything you buy, everything you live in, you know, don't get too attached. It's going to stay here. But God has an inheritance. Now, we think of inheritance, you think a big check. You think, you think monetary. You know, inheritance is usually a, a, a sizable sum of money. And I have to tell you, there's nobody richer than our Heavenly Father. But I would say that I don't think the inheritance is financial. There are things that money can't buy. And one of those things that money can't buy is relationship. 
Think about this. If I give you an option here, give you $50,000, or you can have that person that died back to life. That person in your spouse, your grandma, grandpa, your mom or dad, your child, your friend. You can have them back. How much money would that be worth? You know, it's inf infinite. Like, well, I'd give anything to have them back. Yeah, it's, it's because that relationship is far more precious than any amount of money. And the reason I say that is because don't be discouraged when God doesn't give you a mansion up on a hill. Because we often think that I'm going to get this big thing from God in heaven, you know, this, this money, land, mansion on a hill. But I want to share with you in the Old Testament, this idea of inheritance is very Old Testament language. Because that was something the, the Jewish people longed for and looked for constantly. God had promised them in the land of Canaan that they would have an inheritance. And so when they got to Canaan, if you remember, uh, different tribes got different chunks of land. And so the tribe of Gad got land over here, and the tribe of Judah got land over here, and, and in the tribe of Benjamin got land over there. Everyone got their big chunks of land to divide up among their family groups, except for one. The tribe of Levi did not get any land. You know why? Here's, a, here's what God said to Aaron. You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. You get me. They get land, you get me. And this, this was a, a sacred group. They were categorically different than all the other tribes because this was the tribe that was responsible to minister in the tabernacle or in the temple later. They were the group that offered the sacrifices. They were the group that led people in prayers. They were the group that taught people the laws of God. And God says, because of your unique role, you have a special place in my heart, and I am your inheritance. Now, he did give them cities within the land. They had cities within each of the, the tribal lands, as if God was saying, I'm going to make sure that they all are kind of watched over by, by my leaders in all these different places, but you will be, you'll be there for them. And the things they raise, the crops they raise, all that will become yours. They will provide for you, but I will be your inheritance. And we see this echoed in one of the Levites, a guy named Asaph, who writes some of the Psalms. And one of, one of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 73, because he begins this Psalm saying, God, you know, my heart became almost bittered because I look around and see people who are wicked prospering, and I see good people suffering, and that doesn't seem right. And then he, he says he entered the sanctuary of God, and then it became clear to him. All of a sudden, this understanding, like, wow, those people are really like walking on mossy rocks. They're going to slip and fall someday. And then, then Asaph says this in verse 26 of Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My inheritance. It's him. Because when you go to heaven, what's foremost is not, a, not the surroundings, the streets of gold, the, the mansions, whatever it is. I've said this oftentimes. What I've come to believe more and more is the highlight of heaven is Jesus. We go to be with a person. We're not, we're not just going to a beautiful place. We're going to be with a person, Jesus. That's why, that's why the New Testament says to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. And why Jesus said, hey, I'm going to heaven and in my Father's house or my Father's mansion are many rooms and I will go and prepare a place for you so that you may be where I am. I, I want to be with you. I want us to be together in eternity. So the Lord has given as his ultimate inheritance the intimacy of a relationship with him. We will not go to church on Sunday in heaven because we'll experience worship every single day. 
because we will be in his presence constantly. Jesus himself is our inheritance. That's why um, when Paul writes to Titus, he says, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our blessed hope. So it's anchored in the past and the resurrection. It looks forward to the future, and because of that, we're motivated in the present because Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, he's going to take us to be with him. And the inheritance that's in heaven has been kept there. He says it'll never fade. It'll never be defiled. It'll never lose its value. It's kept there for you. It'll always be safe. And while that's being kept safe, he says, I'm keeping you safe for your inheritance because you trust me. We're, we're guarded by faith. We're trusting in the Lord, and he's protecting us. Does that mean we're protected from every harm in this life? No, not at all. That's why Christians get COVID. Christians get cancer. Christians suffer tragic accidents. Um, Christians are victims of crimes. Well, then what does God do? How is he guarding us? How is he protecting us? He's protecting your relationship with him. Nothing can separate you from him. Nothing can break the flow of God's love toward you. Nothing. Physically, will you struggle? There you may. There may be difficulties in this earth, but he's protecting our relationship with him. That's why when bad things happen, we recognize that God is doing something good, which leads us to this next section in Peter's letter. He says, in this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So while we have hope for the future, we must endure these fiery trials, these difficult, painful trials, which can often wear us down. You know, hope's very positive. Trials aren't. Who looks forward to trials. And, and what's really hard is he tells us to rejoice in them. In fact, here's what it says in Romans, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. I don't know anybody, I, I'm just being honest, I don't know anybody who goes around saying, man, I'm rejoicing in my suffering. And yet it is a Christian virtue to have that attitude of, you know, I'm going through a tough time, but it's okay. God's doing something good. He's developing character. When I was in high school, I ran um, cross-country one season, and to be honest, I didn't like running. I did it to get myself ready for basketball, to build up my endurance. But, I mean, all you do is run. You just run. Go! Three miles, run! And, uh, and so I had to, you know, really motivate myself because after about a half mile, I'm going, I'm getting tired. This isn't good. Um, and I, constantly in my head, I'm saying, just quit. You don't have to do this. This is, this is ridiculous. You just run, run, run like a kid. You know, just, just stop it. And so I'm fighting this in my head, this constant thing like, just quit, you're tired, quit, quit, quit. And I'm saying, no, no. And what I had to do is establish goals like get to that fence post, okay? Get to that street corner, you know, get to that tree and just constantly set goals in front of me. I would sing songs like we... I remember we really move our tails for you. I was singing, you know, just to get myself motivated. Let's get pumped up. You got to keep going. And race after race, I'm building up more endurance. And those thoughts aren't as strong. And I'm getting to where I'm kind of actually liking running. You get this, you know, where you hit, the, you hit a wall 
You got to break through that wall. You got to break through that, that, that uh, discouragement and the emotional thing that becomes this wall. It's mental and it's physical, and they combine. You got to press through. You got to break through that. And when you, when you do that repeatedly, it just stretches you. you. You know, the wall moves down further or the breaking point goes down further. But that's why when you go through, you go in the military, you go into a lot of fields, there is a grueling period of time up front where you are tested and trained to build up your endurance so that you can look back and go, okay, now I know I can handle this. I have hope. So character is being developed. That's why he says we rejoice. Character produces hope. James says it this way, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Once again, count it joy. Okay, God, thank you for this. Thank you for what you're doing in the midst of this. Uh, you know, think about this. One of the staff members shared with me the other day, if, if you were to encounter some big challenge in life and you found at that moment of time this big challenge you've been waiting for your whole life, you were not prepared for, wouldn't you wish someone would have trained you up front so at that moment you would have been ready for it? And what if God is saying, hey, I'm going to... I'm going to prepare you for what lies in your future, but I've got to get you through this painful period up front to get you ready because you're not ready yet. Your faith isn't strong enough. You'd quit too easily. I need to build up character and endurance within you. So rejoice in it. And he says it'll come through various kinds of trials. And think about it, the kinds that you might face, criticism, rejection, um, difficult decisions, relational conflict, persecution, slander, financial or health hardships, Death, tasks that take an enormous amount of energy and time, maybe satanic opposition, all these things can be um, various trials that come our way. And there are some common traits with trials. Number one, they're painful. Peter says, you've suffered grief in the midst of these trials. They're painful. Um, they're not pleasant. That's why it's so hard to rejoice. Like, man, I, I don't like this. I want to get through this. But if you follow the um, life of almost every biblical character from Abraham and Moses and David and Jesus and Paul, you find, you find that had a hard road. It was a hard road, a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, a lot of difficult things, but they endured and God blessed them. And when this happens, you might think one of two thoughts. Is God punishing me? Am I going through this tough time because God is punishing me for something I did. Or it's a satanic attack. Satan's doing this. He's stirring it up. He's trying to, trying to get his way, and, and that's why things are so hard. And I just want to tell you, it might not be either one of those. Not everything painful is bad, nor is everything painful things we should shirk off as unnecessary. There may be things God says, I need you to go through this time of pain so you can learn some lessons you won't learn any other way. The Bible does say that there are times when God disciplines us as a father disciplines a son and that no discipline is pleasant at the time. Think about the word discipline. It's, it's connected to the word disciple. It means to be trained. Discipline is not punishment. It's, it's training that's painful. So if you're being disciplined, you're going through training that's painful so that you can bear a harvest in some area of your life down the road. And sometimes things can be hardship because we choose them. If you're on a diet, that's an that's a enforced hardship because you have a goal in your life and you know this is good. 
and I'm going to discipline myself to go through the pain because my body needs it. And, and it could be financial. You make some decision. I'm going to give, give to the Lord, and I'm going to have to adjust in other areas. Those are painful decisions, and those are good. But, but so many of the trials that come our way, to be honest, blindside us. We're not ready for them. We weren't prepared for them. They just slap us off the side of the head. And I would ask you to look, look from your heavenly Father's perspective at trials. What does God see when he sees us going through pain? Now, as a parent, I'll just tell you, or grandparent, I want to go in and rescue. I look at my little grandkids. I don't want them to be rejected by their girlfriends. I don't want them to, to get cut from the ball team. I don't want them to, um, to fail in something in their life. I don't want them to go through a divorce. I don't want them to, you know, suffer in any form. You know, we don't want to see our kids get in accidents, but we want to see them drive, right? And we know that if you drive, that could happen. And so from a parent's point of view, we recognize I can't always go in a rescue because they'll never grow if I do. I've got to let them develop. Now, there's an interesting analogy when you look at a um, butterfly coming out of a cocoon. So when a butterfly um, breaks from the cocoon, after a period of time when its body is ready, it begins to bust the shell of the cocoon. And you can watch it happen. It's, it's almost agonizing watching this little thing struggle because they're trying to get, they don't even have fingers. You know, can you imagine with your wings trying to get out of a cocoon? And they're trying to bust out of this cocoon and they're struggling. And you go, man, I just want to rip that cocoon open and get them free. But if you do that, you'll actually kill that creature because it will never be able to fly. God has designed the butterfly to go through the struggle because in that struggle, there's fluid that goes into the wings. And that fluid enables those wings to develop so one day it can fly. And, and you in mercy, protecting them from that struggle are actually hindering their growth. And we can do that with our kids. We can do it with our grandkids. We can, we can do that, you know, with our own lives. Like, I don't want to go through that hardship. I don't want to go through the pain. And the father's saying, you, you got to. That's part of your development. That's how I'm going to develop character and stamina and grit. You've got to go through there. Something good is happening within you. Trials can be painful. They also are purposeful, purposeful. Trials come, Peter says, to test our faith, which means it wants to prove that it's genuine. Whenever you test something, it's like, I want, to, I want to prove that it can do what it said it could do. Well, if you buy a car or you buy an electronic device like a, a cell phone or something, you want it to know that it's been tested, right? It can do what it's promised to do. Or you go to the doctor and say, can you test my heart? I want to make sure my heart's doing what it's supposed to do. You know, test proves the genuineness of something. You, you have kids go to school and they have finals week. It's, it's the test. Did you gain the knowledge that we wanted you to gain during this season of time? And so... So we go through this period of, of testing. God tests our faith through trials because it's easy to say you believe. Like, oh, man, I, I love Jesus. I believe in him. You know, ah, me and God are this way. Then you start going through tough times, and, you, and now you look at that person and go, oh, I, don't, I don't know if I'm believing in God right now because this stuff wouldn't be happening if God was part of my life. Now I'm mad at God. Or do people see you still clinging to God? The God you were worshiping when things were good, are you still worshiping him when things are tough? That's the real test. Is your faith genuine or is it, or is it just a feel-good faith? Peter's saying God wants to test the genuineness of it so that it could be refined like gold. Now think about how a goldsmith would work. goldsmith would take uh, the pieces of gold, melt them down in a pot under great heat, extreme heat, 
till it becomes a liquid, and then out of that liquid surfaces um, the dross, the little um, impurities and particles within the gold would come to the top, and they would skim it off. And what would be left would be just this batch of pure gold. And one of the tests, just to see how good it was, if it was pure, would be to, to look at that, that pot of melted gold, and the goldsmith could look down and see the reflection of his face. And think about that. When you go through the fiery furnace of trials, God's looking down. He wants to see his reflection in you. He wants to see if what's coming out in your life is Christ-like. See, when trials come, what often comes to the surface is bitterness and anger and jealousy and, you know, that kind of stuff surfaces to the top. Well, God says, okay, it's surface. Let's get rid of it. Get rid of it. Don't hold on to it. Get rid of it. Because if you can get rid of it, and sometimes it takes trials to surface it, get rid of it. Now your faith is pure. You trust me no matter what. You trust me when you don't understand. You trust me in good times and bad times. You trust me always. That's what I want. I want a faith that's pure. See, sometimes Satan may be the source of trials, but get this. Even if Satan is doing something in your life, you don't want to give in to it, but know this. God can even take what was intended for bad and use it for good. He, he did that with Joseph in the Old Testament. Satan may think he's doing something in your life, and God says, hey, I'll take that, and I'll, I'll use that too in your life for something good. So just know that if God's allowing it to happen, think of Job, what Job went through. Uh, Job, um, in fact, I can't find my verse now with Job, that, that when Job came, came through his test, he said he would, he would be like pure gold, pure gold. So trials are purposeful. They're also um, not perpetual. He says, for a little while. For a little while, you've had to deal with these things. They're not going to be forever. This isn't what the Christian life is all about. This comes for a season. Oh, here's Job. Uh, remember Job? Satan or the adversary came to God and says, ah, he trusts you because his life is so easy, because it's so blessed. Take away that stuff and he'll curse you. And so Job went through a period of time where he lost his family, lost his farm, and lost his health. And his wife said, you know, hubby, it's time to curse God. He goes, no, I can't do that. Naked I came from the womb. Naked, I'll go back. Hey, by the way, I heard that um, the church in town is going to have a mask-only service. And someone says, that's it, just a mask? <laughs> this mask sounds like the nudist service. But anyway, oh, mask-only plus clothes. Okay, mask-only plus clothes. Anyway, naked we came from the mother's womb, naked we shall return. Uh, but, but Job says, I'm going to praise God anyway. And later on in the book of Job, after all of his friends tried to give their advice and it didn't make sense, Job said this, when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. God is going for gold in your life. And if you're going through a fiery trial, just know God is working to bring something good out of it. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In other words, God uses pain oftentimes to get our attention so that we will listen to him. Because often in those painful times that our prayer life escalates, like, God, why are you doing this? God, what's going on here? God, I need you right now. And God says, hey, finally, we're talking again. Finally, I like this. It's okay that you're upset, but at least we're talking. You know, God wants that relationship. He wants our attention. If you're going through this difficult season, maybe it's, maybe it's a good time for you to step back and go, God, what are you saying to me during this time? Why is it so hard? Why do things hurt so much? And ask God for wisdom. 
Ask God for strength. Ask God for endurance to get through so that your faith can become like gold. And Peter ends this section by saying, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter says, you and I get to enjoy a great salvation, a salvation that began way back at the beginning of time when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and forfeited God's paradise. God set in motion a plan. He said, you will suffer consequences for your sin, but I'm going to raise up a child who will come from Eve, a descendant down her line who will crush the serpent's head. A few generations later, he chooses Abraham and Sarah and says they're going to have a son. And that son uh, will be the lineage through which God would bring a seed, an offspring down the road, who then will be a blessing to all the nations on this earth. And so all through the Old Testament, this story is unfolding piece by piece. It's like a puzzle. Like, like you're getting little pieces of this puzzle. And so um, Micah says he'll be born in Bethlehem. And Isaiah says he will suffer like a lamb led to the slaughter. And the psalmist writes that they'll, they'll um, gamble for his garments. And, and Jeremiah says something, and, and Samuel says something, and all these prophets through the Old Testament are saying, but no one has like the, the perfect picture, the complete picture of what's going to happen with this person. In fact, Peter says they, they really looked in trying to figure it all out. They're trying to look into inquiring who is it and when is it going to happen, and they couldn't. They didn't know who this person was, and they didn't know when it was going to happen. And people thought they could figure it out. In fact, they had these old concepts. Well, this is what he's going to look like, and this is what he's going to do. And so when Jesus came and didn't fit that picture, they were disappointed. Oh, he he's doesn't look like a king like we thought. He, he looks different, and he's going to die on a cross. We, never, we didn't see that coming. And Peter says, they didn't know, but you do. You do. Because it was for your benefit. And most of these people are like you and I. They're Gentiles. They weren't part of the story, but they're the beneficiaries of the story. And then Peter goes on and says, you know what? Even the angels didn't know. Think about that. Well, couldn't the angels like all huddle around God and get the story and go back and go, woo can't wait till this happens? No. Not all angels are good. Not all angels keep their mouths shut. And the reason is, Scripture says, if, if the spirit world would have known, they would never have crucified Jesus. In fact, it's not in your notes there, but, but this is an important scripture. 1 Corinthians 1.8, none of the rulers of this age, that's speaking not of uh, uh, earthly kings, it's speaking of spiritual, that's a term of the spiritual rulers. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they knew that's what it took to save people, well, we're not going to kill that guy. Let Jesus just die of old age, you know, whatever. Let him go on because, because that's not going to happen. We're not going to make that happen. And so he says, the angels don't know. They're not going to obstruct God's plan. In fact, they're, they're going to think by killing Jesus, they're doing um, Satan a favor, but it actually is fitting perfect into God's plan. And the reason this is interesting is, is sometimes we can get so wrapped up trying to figure out the future. When is Jesus going to come? Who are the characters? How this is all going to play out? And maybe once again, God is saying, I'm giving you pieces of the puzzle. 
But I don't want the other spirit world knowing the details to get in the way to mess up my plan. In Ephesians, the apostle um, Paul says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. The gospel now announced to you and me is good news. It's good news of our salvation. All the stuff in the past, the pieces of the puzzle have come together in Jesus. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead and he's not finished. He's going to come again to bring us full salvation. So are we saved? Yes and no. It's, it's what the Bible calls the already and the not yet. Are we saved? Yes, we are but not fully. There's a, there's a part of salvation that is yet to come. We're going to be redeemed from this body. We're going to redeem from this earth. We're going to be redeemed forever with the Lord. It's the same thing with the kingdom of God. Has the kingdom of God come? Yes, already, but it's not yet. It's not yet in its fullness. Has Satan been defeated? Yes, but not fully. Already and not yet. And, and the Bible gives us those both pictures of things that have been decided and determined and yet not finished. But I think what, what Peter is getting at in this whole passage is this progression that before there ever was a resurrection, there was a death. Death precedes resurrection. And before faith can be purified, you have to go through the pain. That pain precedes purification. And that in many cases, suffering precedes salvation. Before your ultimate departure from this life, you're going to go through some hardship, but that's okay because we know that, that, that all these things are overcome by something very good. Jesus suffered to secure our salvation. We may suffer on this planet, but when that happens, hope, hope intensifies, faith purifies, and God is glorified. The Lord is not punishing you with the trial you're going through. The Lord is not ignoring you the trial is developing you. And God's revealing to you that he's right there with you. Remember the story in the Old Testament of the, the three guys that get thrown into the fiery furnace? And once they're in there, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, the king looks in there and says, hey, there's a fourth person in that fire. He looks like the son of God. Jesus was with them in the fire. And he's with you in this fire. This, this period we've gone through this year, I'm telling you, for many people, it has been some of the greatest trials and struggles they've ever gone through in their life. But you need to know this. God has been very active in this season. And he has been there with you. He will continue to be with you in the fire. And so we're going to sing a song here just to pronounce that and, and really to believe in our hearts that God is standing with us in the midst of whatever challenge you're going through in your life. I know you parents. I, I talked to so many parents who are so frustrated with, not, not with the school district or just decisions, just frustrated with the whole environment. Their, their kids can't get the education they want them. They can't be with their peers like they want. They don't, they don't have the safety that they want, and they're just frustrated, and it's hard, and you're trying to juggle so many things. This is a season of trial, but God is with you. The Lord is with you, and he's going to bring good out of this. So let's stand and sing this um, together as a church.